We'll take a copy of the Bible and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And if that sounds like a repeat, you're like, uh, Kyle, you might be confused. We were in Mark 10 last week. You're right. We're going to look at the very next passage in Mark chapter 10. Though what we're doing in this particular series of messages is not a sequential or you know, chronological exposition. We're looking at scenes in the life of Jesus and some of the apostles and how they engaged with unbelief around them, looking for principles that we might glean and how we proclaim the good news of the kingdom uh, to those in our path that the Lord would put around us. Last week we looked at uh, a scene where Jesus welcomed children to come to him and the disciples were deterring them, trying to keep Jesus on task as it were. And Jesus made it very plain to them that his task indeed includes children. Let them come to me. And I think the big message from that scene is that the kingdom of God is not attained by power or purchased by wealth, but is granted to those who draw near to Jesus in humble faith. Well, the very next paragraph in Mark's gospel, not by accident, introduces us to a man who thinks that he can gain the kingdom by his own righteousness or perhaps by his own wealth. So I think Mark has very intentionally set these two scenes side by side to contrast with one another. Jesus inviting children into the kingdom and indeed exhorting adults to come to him like children with simple, humble, dependent faith, and then immediately turning and speaking to a man who believes that he has all that he needs to attain eternal life through his own wealth and status and indeed his own ability to keep God's commands. And so the contrast is clear. So in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, we get the story of the rich young man. Some, some headings in the Bible might say rich young ruler. So this is uh, let's just begin to kind of walk through the story and draw out, as we've been doing in this series, draw out principles as we go that might help us in our own engagement with unbelievers around us. So the story begins in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And you can tell right off the bat some things about this fellow. The question he asks him is focused on his own effort, isn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But even before he gets to that, he addresses Jesus in a particular way. Good teacher. He recognizes Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher of the law, and so he approaches him with respect and with honor and assuming that he would be an authority right on on what God's law requires and so he goes to this rabbi and calls him good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus as he's prone to do responds with a question and his question highlights the way that the man addressed him look at verse 18 Jesus said to him why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus, of course, is not here denying his own divinity. 
so we would be wrong to read it that way. Jesus has something in mind. Jesus has a strategy here that he's employing with this man. Why do you call me good? So goodness is at the heart of this conversation. Goodness is at the heart of what this man understands to be the way to get into the kingdom, and indeed, it seems to be how he understands himself. And so he's addressed Jesus as good, and so Jesus camps out on that word. Why do you call me good, right? The only one that's truly, fully, morally good is God. Why would you assume that about me? And so he brings up goodness because he knows that this man's heart is enamored with his own goodness or his perception of his goodness. And that becomes very clear in his response to what Jesus says next, all right? So Jesus began with this question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then look at verse 19. You know the commandments, right? Assuming you've grown up in this tradition and you've heard the, the scriptures, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, of course, this is only a sampling of the commands of God. The Old Testament scriptures are replete with God's commands. And he's quoting here from the Ten Commandments, which itself is sort of a summary of the moral commands of God. And so he's implying here, you know the commands. You're familiar with the Word of God. You know what he calls you to. And he kind of cites these examples as a summary of the commandments. But it, it implies, doesn't it, when the man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life, what Jesus points him to is obedience to the commands of God, obedience to God's law, right? Doesn't that imply, well, if I perfectly obey all of God's commands, then I will inherit eternal life? That would seem to be the implicit answer that Jesus gives him. Again, remember, there's a strategy in Jesus' mind related to this man's perception of himself. The question of goodness is at the heart of this whole exchange. Good teacher, why do you call me good? Keep these commands, right? And so look at this man's response in verse 20, and he reveals his heart pretty clearly. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Wow. Impressive fella. All of these commands and the rest that are implied by what Jesus lists here in this sort of summary sampling of the law, you have kept all of these commands from the time you were a child? Wow, here he is, the one righteous enough on his own to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, you can, you can see how ridiculous this claim is. And you could imagine that Jesus might respond to him uh, with disdain or with stern correction. We'll get to Jesus' response in a minute. But this man is clearly convinced of his own goodness. His response to this command or this statement to enter the kingdom, obey all the commands of God. His response is, hey, I've been doing that. I've been a good boy all year, right? I've done this the whole time. I am batting a thousand here. This man is clearly self-deceived. 
Who would have the audacity to say to Jesus, oh yeah, I've, I've kept your law perfectly, except for one who is convinced of his own righteousness. Here's the first principle that I see in this story in terms of how we are to engage with unbelievers. Look for ways to expose self-righteousness. Look for ways to expose self-righteousness. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the Bible Belt, sometimes the hardest work of seeing sinners saved is convincing them that they need saving. Many people have a deeply embedded sense of their own moral goodness. And often, in our culture, some tangential religiosity to back it up. Well, my father was a preacher, or I was baptized as a child, or I'm a member of such and such local church. So there's even these kind of religious connections that sort of reinforce in people's minds and hearts, I think I'm doing well. I think God and I must be on good terms because of how I'm living my life. I think at some level, everyone falls prey to this kind of, this instinct of self-justification. And Jesus draws this to the surface in his conversation with this rich young man so that he can address what's really keeping him from the kingdom. And of course, he doesn't come right out and say it. Jesus asks diagnostic questions to get to what's at the heart. He strategically draws it out. The good news of the gospel answers the bad news of human sin and God's wrath. So if a person is convinced that he's good, then he won't have ears to hear the gospel of a righteousness outside of himself that's been purchased for him by Christ's death. That just makes no sense. It doesn't sound like it meets a need to somebody who thinks, I have it together. So we need to find ways to draw this out when we're talking with people who don't yet believe. Essentially asking, maybe not in these words, but trying to get to, are you trusting in yourself and your own righteousness for your standing with God? And often we'll find that is the case. And that's certainly the case with this rich young man. And as we're engaging with people in that way and trying to draw out and identify where there may be evidence of a person trusting in himself, his own righteousness, his own morality, we need to pray that the Lord will reveal that in, the, in these conversations and break through it. You can't be smart enough or clever enough or witty enough to, to convict a person of that. That has to be the work of the Lord. So as we're talking with people, we pray, Lord, make this clear if it's here. And as it surfaces, Lord, break through it, convict him, make it real to him. John Calvin said, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. The truth is we can sort of convince ourselves that we're doing pretty well if we're looking horizontally. Well, I'm better than that guy, right? At least my life is more together than that lady's life is, right? Like the Pharisee, thank you that I am not like other men, right? But if we're looking at the holy, righteous standard of God himself, good teacher, none of us measures up. Nobody measures up. 
And we need to, to draw that out. I pray that the Lord will reveal that. Look at the next thing Jesus says in verse 21. I, I find this remarkable. Just a little bit of a commentary, actually, that we have from Mark before he even speaks. Verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. And on he goes, and we're not going to get there just yet, because I want to stop right here. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. There's principle number two. Love the people you're trying to reach. Love the people you're trying to reach. Don't love the idea of evangelism or the idea of winning an argument. Don't love the idea of somebody being converted or the pat on the back you'll get from, the, from Christians and the church around you because you shared the gospel with somebody or you won a convert or whatever. Don't love any of those things. Love the person. I think it's really noteworthy that Jesus here doesn't ever lose sight of the individual in front of him. He looked at him. He notices him. He's discerning him. He knows this man, and he loves him. wouldn't be that surprising to read that Jesus rolled his eyes. I've kept all these commandments from my youth. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, fella. Or laughed at him. No, he, he loved him. I think that's really instructive for us. We will only be as effective in our evangelism as our love for the people that we're evangelizing. So he goes on, continuing the sort of diagnostic work of exposing what's in this man's heart. Look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. One thing I didn't mention, I mentioned all the commands. You said you've kept all those perfectly. Cool. Here's, here's one additional thing that I, want you to, that I want you to do. Sell everything you have. Give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. What's he doing here? He is drawing out the man's true love. His stuff, right? His money, his possessions, his status. It's the most important thing to him. And Jesus, in giving this instruction, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me, is drawing to the surface yet again what is in this man's heart. And what is in this man's heart is love of stuff love of wealth now is this a universal command do we read this verse and then take that application as jesus commands all christians to not own anything we should always sell whatever we have and give all of it to the poor is that what jesus is commanding here i don't think so however i heard one preacher say basically this is a paraphrase no, Jesus isn't issuing a universal command in telling this man to sell everything he owns. But if you're asking this question for fear that perhaps Jesus might ask that of you, then you may be the kind of person to whom Jesus would have said this. <laughs> so if you feel whew, a little bit of relief that this isn't a universal command, well, this might be a command that Jesus would give to you, right? 
Beware of what's in your heart. No, this is not a universal command. This is not, he's not like tacking on here. Yes, oh, by the way, don't own anything. You have to sell everything you ever own and give it to the poor. That's not what he's doing. It's kind of beside the point. What he's doing in the conversation is drawing out an idol in this man's heart. And we see that idolatry plainly in the next part, in the next verse, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. That is disheartening. It's interesting that he was not disheartened to hear that to enter the kingdom he had to obey all of God's commands. He thought he had that down. Oh, sweet, if that's what it takes, I'm there. Okay, one more thing, says Jesus. All your possessions, all that stuff, all the things that you love and spend all your time with, I want you to sell it, give all the money to the poor, and then you can follow me. And that's a bridge too far for this guy. He went away sorrowful. Maybe he's looking for a tweak. Maybe he's like, hey, I'm doing pretty good, but Rabbi, tell me something I can, a little change I could make that'll make sure that I'm good with God. That'll be great. Maybe, and perhaps more likely, he's just looking for affirmation. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe he's hoping that Jesus will go, man, I see you, you're good. Just keep doing what you're doing, you're in, man. Maybe that's what he's hoping for. But what he receives instead is a call to self-sacrifice, to self-denial, a call to release his grip on what is most important to him in the world. Here's the third principle. Be on the lookout for idols. Be on the lookout for idols. Probably not a literal, physical idol, although you might meet people that have them. Certainly, if they come from a, a certain religious tradition where there are idols, you, you may find that. But more often than not in our culture, the idols are invisible. The idols are things that have a grip on the heart. The idols are things that are more important than anything else. We need to be observing and, and looking for what loves, what obsessions, what hang-ups are keeping a person from Jesus? What are they reluctant to lay down? The point at which a person says, well, I don't know if I can do that, is the point of idolatry. That's where you've identified this person loves that, fill in the blank, more than anything else. The truth is, friends, following Jesus has a cost. He may not literally require you to sell all your possessions, although who's to say that he wouldn't? He has the right to ask that of us. He may not literally require you to sell all your possessions, but Jesus says if we aren't willing to leave homes, families, livelihoods, etc., for the sake of the kingdom, then we aren't worthy of him. Why would that be? Because you love something else more than him. Because you've placed something else in your life in that place of priority that he alone deserves to hold. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is inherent in the gospel invitation. Yes, turn from your sin. Yes, trust in Jesus. Yes, be saved, be redeemed. In doing that, you are receiving not just forgiveness and mercy, but you're receiving 
a savior and a lord. You're receiving a new master. You're living your life under a new authority. You're a citizen of a new kingdom, right? All of that is inherent to and wrapped up in the invitation to trust Christ. And so he finds in this man's heart idolatry. Let me say this as a bit of an application. Idols don't only live in the hearts of unbelievers. God's people have a bit of a checkered history when it comes to keeping God as the first and greatest treasure in their hearts as well. Just read the Bible. It'll become pretty plain. Be aware of idols in your own heart. Be always laying them down and laying them down again for the sake of Jesus and his glory. Ask him today, what do I need to give up? What is getting in the way of my wholehearted pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom? And then give it to him. Jesus challenged the young man to sell his possessions because he discerned idolatry in his heart. And the guy proves Jesus right by his response. He went away sad. And now the rest of this passage is Jesus sort of debriefing with his disciples about what they just saw. Because, of course, they're all around him. This conversation is happening in their presence. And so the rich young man goes away, rejecting the kingdom for the sake of his wealth and possessions. And now he turns to his disciples and begins to teach them. Look in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's an interesting statement. That's probably not a very popular idea. Those with wealth will have some extra difficulty entering the kingdom of God. He's pointing here to the danger, the spiritual danger of riches. He doesn't say, and I don't think it's necessarily implied, that it's morally wrong to be wealthy. Right? Wealth in itself is not immoral. But it comes with some inherent dangers, some ditches to fall into. Why? Why would it be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? I'm going to give you three, three reasons. First, wealth blinds a human heart to its own need. Wealth blinds a human heart to its own need. The more stuff I have, the more earthly security I can attain for myself, the less I feel like I need any help at all. We think we have everything we need, right? If I'm wealthy and I've got a good 401k and money in the bank and good job security, what do I need from God? I've got this thing down. I've got everything that I need. Which, by the way, is the exact opposite of what we saw about children back in verse 14. Right? Let the children come to me. And anyone who does not come like a child will not receive the kingdom. Why? Because they're dependent. They recognize their need. Not like this man who thinks he doesn't have any needs. He thinks he's morally good enough on his own and 
He's not willing to give up his stuff. It's too important. And so wealth can insulate a person from hardships and maladies that affect other people, like actually, tangibly. I read an article a few years ago that suggests that people who live in the suburbs, where suburban life is sort of this like effort to create a, a utopian world where there, all the problems of quote-unquote the city are far away, and everything is nice and clean and the, green, the grass is green and, and all of this, right? That people who live in the suburbs tend to be less concerned about social injustices because by and large they experience far fewer of them because they've insulated themselves from the hardships of poverty and brokenness that affect so many. So wealth can just blind a human heart to its own need. I don't need this. I don't need any help. Number two, wealth redirects the heart's attention and affections to earthly things. Why would I want the kingdom when I can have all this great stuff, right? Jesus said it, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, right? Wherever you stockpiled stuff, that's where I'm going to spend my time and energy. I want to make sure this is safe. So if I'm piling up stuff on earth, do I have any time to think about the kingdom? Why am I going to bother with that? I need to keep this safe. Rich Mullins has a song where he said, the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. That's a competition ongoing in human hearts. And the third reason I think that, that wealth makes it difficult to enter the kingdom is that wealth is subtly connected in our minds with goodness and divine favor. Right? Well, why am I rich? Because God blessed me, right? Look at that guy. Look at how much stuff he has. He must be doing something right, we might think. God must really love him, right? That's apparently a connection that the disciples made when they saw this man who was rich, who turned away from the kingdom, and then they hear Jesus say, man, it's hard for people who are wealthy to enter the kingdom. Their minds are blown. Look at their, look at their response in verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words. They were amazed at his words. And in a minute, they're going to say, then who could be saved? If this guy who A, has kept the commands, and B, has been blessed with riches upon riches, if he can't enter the kingdom, what chance do any of us have, right? They've made a connection somewhere between this man's riches and God's favor and blessings. Now, could it be that God's blessing on a person's life leads to riches and wealth? Absolutely. Is that always the case? Is wealth necessarily an indication that God is pleased with a person? Probably not. But we make these connections between riches and goodness, or riches and God's blessing or favor. And so it creates a, a barrier. There's more that could be said here, but Jesus is pointing out the dangers, the spiritual dangers of wealth. How hard it is for one with wealth to enter the kingdom and the disciples are amazed look at verse 24 again the disciples were amazed at his words but jesus said to them again children how difficult it is 
to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel, which would have been the largest known mammal probably at the time, so we're using some hyperbole here, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so the disciples are just overcome. They were exceedingly astonished, it says verse 26. Then who can be saved? Who can possibly be saved if that's the case? If a rich person who keeps the commands and is blessed by God, if he can't enter the kingdom, then who could possibly be saved? And Jesus says in verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You see, the disciples were actually onto something here. When they go, wait a minute, if this guy and all the things he's got going on for him can't enter the kingdom, then what in the world kind of chance do I have? They're actually kind of thinking right. They're onto something here. Why would anyone be welcomed into the kingdom? That's a better question. Why would Jesus welcome any of us poor, foolish, rebellious sinners into his kingdom? Who could possibly stand? And Jesus' response is basically, now that's something I can work with, right? When you get to the point of this seems absurd, this seems impossible, how could any sinful person enter God's kingdom? Jesus says, that's a good starting place. It's not possible with man. But with God, all things are possible. You've arrived at the right starting place when you say, this doesn't seem possible. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Man can't save himself. No human being gets into the kingdom of God on his own effort. But with God, praise God, all things are possible, even the salvation of self-justifying, idol-worshiping sinners. Here's number four, principle number four. Believe in your evangelism. Believe that God can do the impossible. Believe that God can do the impossible. Because that's what we're asking him to do. Anytime we open our mouths to speak to a sinner and say, you are a sinner and you need to trust in Christ and repent of your sins and you'll be saved. We are speaking of a miracle. We are pointing them to something that is utterly impossible, humanly speaking, but something that God in his amazing power does day after day, year after year, century after century in saving sinners. Believe that God can do that. He did it for you. He can do it again. Who do you think is beyond the reach of God's grace? Who do you think of in your life? An unbeliever in your life that you think, there's no way that person's ever going to believe. Who are you tempted to write off, to just give up on? I'm not going to waste my breath. God can do the impossible. God is in the business of the impossible. Peter began to say to him, look at verse 28, after Jesus has said, all things are possible with God. Peter said, see, we have left everything 
and followed you. All right, well, we, we did what this guy wasn't willing to do. We, we left our homes. We put down our nets. We left our families behind, and we went on the road with you. We're, we're following you. And Jesus assures Peter and the disciples here. Look in verse 29. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Why couldn't you skip that part, Jesus? And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus reassures the disciples here and he reassures us, yes, it's costly to enter the kingdom. Yes, it's costly to follow Jesus, but it's always worth it. Here's the fifth and final principle I would share from from this passage. Share in your evangelism. Share the return on investment. Yes, we have to say the bad news. We got to tell people that they're under God's wrath and they need to repent and trust Christ. And yes, we want to tell people about the good news that Christ has provided for their sin and, and, and God will forgive their sins if they'll trust in Christ. But we also want to share with them, it's not just costly to follow Jesus, it is worth it to follow Jesus. You will gain blessing in your life now and in eternity when you follow Jesus. Turning from idols and following Jesus is costly, but it's always worth it. The one who forsakes his earthly pursuits for the sake of Christ and his kingdom gains riches he can scarcely imagine. Maybe, maybe not physical, earthly, material possession. There are millions of faithful, godly, poor Christians, and there have been throughout history. So following Jesus is not a guarantee that you're going to be materially wealthy. But the blessings Jesus is talking about here is much deeper than that. If you leave home and family, what do you receive? A hundredfold mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. I think he's talking about the family of God. I think he's saying when you leave your earthly family for the sake of following me and entering my kingdom, you gain a whole new family, a global family, an eternal family who bear the same name, who give their allegiance to the same kingdom. You get these spiritual blessings now and eternal life. The blessings never stop, even after you die. There is a return on investment that is deeper and richer than we sometimes understand. So, following Jesus is costly. You will have to turn away from idols. He might ask you to give up something that's really important to you. It does require acknowledging, I haven't actually kept all these commandments so great. There's some gaps here between my righteousness and the holy standard of God. So it takes humility. It takes brokenness. But in that place, in that brokenness, in that humility, that's where the gospel begins. That's where the grace of God works. And it draws you in. It does not push you away. No sinners here. It says, no, come to me. Come to me. All you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Well, how about you? What is the Lord calling you to leave behind in order to follow Jesus? What are you hanging on to? An addiction or a sinful habit? A tradition? Some sense of family obligation? That means certain, certain steps of obedience or sacrifice seem unreasonable. Maybe it's your own sense of needing to measure up to some religious standards. Maybe it's your desire for comfort and ease, wealth, security, whatever. What is it that the Lord may be asking you today to lay down for the sake of the kingdom? Jesus said to this rich young man, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. So when we give up what our heart loves most for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, he says, we'll have treasure in heaven. We'll gain eternal life with him. We'll gain blessings beyond measure. Don't get stuck on the stuff of earth. Set your heart on the goodness of Jesus and follow him in faith. Let's pray together.